Tomatoes used to be something scary. Many Italians feared tomatoes, believing they would be poisonous. People were killed because they ate tomatoes, especially women. Yes, it sounds absurd nowadays, but the success of the tomato was a turbulent journey that took over 300 years. You're listening to season five of Red to Green, history for the future of food. Stick around till the end to see how this story might relate to our present and the future of food. Let's jump right in. You're listening to Red to Green, the audiobook style podcast on food tech and sustainability. Moving the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. There's a saying, what the farmer doesn't know, he won't eat. During the 15th century, many foods came to Europe as immigrants. Christopher Columbus and his crew set sail west in August 1492. He hoped to get his hands on gold and spices in America, but when he returned to Europe, his clients, the Spanish kings, were disappointed. Instead of gold and spices, Columbus returned with seeds, grains, tubers, dried leaves from all of these four journeys. His crew ate cooked potatoes on their journey, which saved them from scurvy and helped to bring tomatoes, avocados and corn to Europe. What looked so unimpressive would turn out to be crucial. These ingredients would shape Europe's eating habits for decades to come. And this is what historians call the Great Columbian Exchange. For the first time in history, potato and tomato plants ventured beyond the Americas. While both of these vegetables are now a basic ingredient of our diets, they didn't have such a warm welcome in Europe. People were, and still are, easily suspicious of unknown foods. The reasoning is different. Back in the days, novel foods were often associated with witchcraft and poison. But fortunately, all is not lost. Eventually, people came around. So let's find out why. In 1544, Pietro Andrea Mattioli, I'm sorry for my pronunciation, an Italian Renaissance doctor and botanist, created a recipe that couldn't sound more ordinary to us today. Tomatoes with olive oil, salt and pepper. Half a century after Columbus had set sail to America, few people knew about tomatoes and they were likely not eaten very often. It took more than 300 years for the tomato to become a staple in Italy and even longer in Northern Europe. There were a few reasons for this. The first tomatoes were a small yellow fruit. They looked very similar to the fruit of mandrakes. Mandrake is part of the nightshade family and is poisonous. Therefore, tomatoes were considered inedible and even poisonous for a long time, since they look almost identical. You don't know if you are just popping in a nice cherry tomato or something that could kill you. Unfortunately, the continent-wide witch hunt in Europe did not help at all. At this time, a theory was taking off. Harry Potter style, witches had begun to use broomsticks to fly. Some people were tasked to hunt witches. These official witch hunters were trying to find out what gave witches the ability to fly. It seemed sensible that witches smear some ointment on their brooms and themselves. That ointment would also give witches the power to turn into animals, especially werewolves. Witch hunters back in the days circled in on the following ingredients. Hemlock, deadly nightshade, 
henbane and mandrake. I must admit they do sound like witchy ingredients. So here comes the issue for our tomato. The tomato is not just related to the deadly nightshade, but all the last four plants. Henbane is something called stinky nightshade and is of course poisonous. Mandrakes, the ones that look like cherry tomatoes, are also hallucination inducing by the way. Deadly, stinky, hallucination inducing. The tomato plant had some very weird siblings in its family. So no wonder that during the 16th and 17th century, tomatoes were a no-no in many parts of Europe. But the Italians had seen the tomato's potential earlier. At that time, it had already found its way into some national dishes, affectionately called pomodoro, the golden apple. In 1548, the Tuscan Grand Duke Cosimo de' Medici received a basket full of tomatoes. They were probably planted in his garden as an exotic extravaganza. The Medici family was very interested in the New World's exotic plants and the possible use of tomatoes. As word spread of the exotic fruit, the humble tomatoes started gaining popularity. From the 16th to the 17th century, tomatoes were planted as rarities in the gardens of the wealthy. Because at the end of the day, human psychology is simple. What is rare is valuable. So the rare tomatoes symbolize prosperity and were used to impress visitors. Hey, have you been enjoying this episode so far? If you would think of just one person that may be interested in this topic, who comes to mind? you can click on the share button and send them a direct link. If you do this now, it maybe just takes 30 seconds. It's a small gesture, but helps us a lot. So we can keep producing future seasons that you can enjoy for free. Thank you for supporting Red to Green. Now back to the episode. By the middle of the 18th century, the tomato had conquered the Italian upper class. The Italian monk Vincenzo Corrado wrote a cookbook in 1773 in which tomatoes are paired with meat, fish and eggs. They began to play an important role in many meatless dishes that were prescribed by the church on certain days. Over a hundred years later, at the end of the 19th century, a baker from Naples created a recipe that would have lasting implications for carp lovers of his day. The Italian king and his wife, called Margarita, were visiting the city, and so the baker covered his dough in the free colors of a still young nation. Green with basil, white with mozzarella, and red the tomato, calling his creation after the king's wife. Welcome to Margarita. <laughs> Around the same time, the tomato returned to the American continent. In Pennsylvania, German immigrant Henry John Heinz used them as a basis for his successful product. Well, guess what it is? He called it ketchup after a similar Chinese word for fish sauce. Those two dishes, pizza and ketchup, swept away the last concerns and made tomatoes one of the most sought-after vegetables in the Western world. Their power remains today, and around 180 million tons of tomatoes are grown worldwide. This is where the episode was supposed to end, but we came across some really interesting insights on how technology influenced the breeding of tomatoes to raise all of the tomatoes that are needed today and to make sure demand is met all year round. We use pesticides and fertilizers irrigation systems and heating glass houses, ethylene for ripening and various methods for preservation. It is a bit of a modern miracle. And we have changed the very core of the tomato itself, its DNA.
the first of the many changes to follow, took place when tomatoes were cultivated by the Aztec farmers in Middle America. The wild Andean tomatoes had small fruit with only two compartments, like the modern cherry tomato. But then a mutation must have taken place, which produced larger ripped fruits with more compartments, as this variation of the original plant was preferred by the Aztecs and cultivated in their gardens, the first tomato variety was created based on the preferences of humans. When tomatoes were introduced to Mediterranean Europe by the Spanish, they took only a small number of the existing varieties. The self-pollinating ones produced the most fruit, because the tomato's insect pollinators had been left behind in the new world. Tomato growers likely chose the seeds of the plants with the most abundant fruit, and so mostly the self-pollinating varieties thrived and were re-imported to the place that would become the United States of America. After tomatoes had become popular in the US in the 19th century, farmers cultivated more and more to meet the growing demand. But as all of them brought their crops to market at harvest time, prices for the fruits were in free fall around that time of the year. Only those farmers who managed to get their tomatoes to market earlier secured high prices, and only those who managed to avoid losses during transportation earned high revenues. So the 19th century seed growers started to breed specifically for tomatoes with those two qualities, early ripening and resistance to damages caused by shipment on a boat or train. In the 1850s, a Dr. T.J. Hand crossed large ripped tomatoes with small smooth-skinned cherry tomatoes and ended up with a large, smooth, durable tomato that looks very similar to the varieties which are still the most popular today. The demand of growing urban markets and new transportation methods such as trains and steamships had influenced the genetics of the tomato. Food canning was about to make an impact as well. By the way, the next episode will be on canning foods, so stay tuned. Canneries first emerged in the US in the 1920s, and the industry grew when the gold rush and civil war led to a rise in demand for portable and imperishable food. Canners took advantage of the fact that most tomatoes were delivered to the market almost simultaneously and bought up the leftovers for peanuts. But they were soon to realize that although the surplus market tomatoes were really cheap, they weren't the best ones for the job. Some of them ripened unevenly and those with ribs created too much waste when peeled. Varieties with too many seeds as well as yellow or purple tomatoes didn't look appetizing when presented in a can. Tomato breeders reacted promptly and developed varieties adopted especially to the canner's needs. Those tomatoes were smoother, redder and meatier than the predecessors and increased the output that canneries could get from each tomato bushel. The canneries contracted farmers to grow this variety just for canning, encouraging them to also grow larger and larger fields with only one type of tomato. There are numerous other examples of how technological and cultural developments influence and change the biology of the good old tomato. Monocultures that developed as a reaction to the canneries needed the creation of disease-resistant high-yielding varieties. The introduction of mechanical harvesting in the early 1940s made fruits with thick skin resistant to cracking and bruising a necessity. 
by the 1980s, genetic engineering had taken the process of creating new tomato varieties with certain desired traits to a whole new level. A tomato with an extended shelf life, trademarked with the name Flavor Saver, was even the first genetically modified food to enter American supermarkets. It didn't really make the cut, the benefit of the flavor saver didn't outweigh the increased cost. Nowadays, tomato varieties are countless. Numbers vary, but they're estimated to be between 10,000 and 25,000 varieties of tomatoes. However, only 3,000 are in active cultivation. Let's look at the lessons for the future of food. Unknown foods can have unknown health implications. It's important for people to feel secure that they are not the guinea pigs of a new experiment. However, real safety and the perception of safety are two rather different criteria and sometimes not even related. Even though driving tends to be more dangerous than flying, most people are way more afraid of going by plane than going by car. It's all about the perception of safety. And one way to create the perception of safety is to normalize a certain behavior. For example, by creating recipes and popular products using the ingredients, like pizza and ketchup were crucial to convince people of the safety and deliciousness of tomatoes. And they also teach people how to use foods. Novel foods may also require different cooking techniques. It's different to fry a plant-based burger than an animal-based one, it just is. And with it comes some necessary consumer education. So partnering with chefs, cooking shows, or cooking educators is a great way to cover both, to normalize a certain food and teach people how to cook it. Thank you for listening. As always, I love to connect with listeners. So just drop me a line on LinkedIn. My name is Marina Schmidt. Marina, like the ocean, like the marine, and Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T. You can also find me by just typing in Rettigreen on LinkedIn and finding me associated with it. As always, there's a whole bunch of people involved in creating this. So thanks to Katarina Tilch for doing ground research for this episode, to Lara Toyman for doing the editing and Celeste Gupta for doing audio editing. Until next time, let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. 